Good morning, everyone. My name is Jamie Nemsis, and welcome to Market Thinkers Series 3. Uh, this series being dedicated to the topic retirement. First, welcome my business partner and co-host, Drew Meredith. Good morning, Drew. Morning, Jamie. And our guests today, Rob and Sophie from Barwon Investment Partners. Welcome, guys. Morning. Uh, as you know, Drew and I run a wealth management business uh, based out of Melbourne. Um, we essentially have a client base that we specialize in retirement. So obviously running a series, a podcast series around retirement is, is, is incredibly topical. We've had a number of guest speakers on over the last mm -hmm. few weeks. And we've been, when, when it comes to investments, we've been, and one of the things that we use internally is a really simple formula that uh, helps clients understand uh, portfolios that is total return equals income plus growth. It's really easy, but today we're probably going to be focusing on the I um, or the income element with a little bit of G coupled with uh, Barwon um, has in one of their solutions has uh, a really strong emphasis on healthcare. And one of the things that we do at Waddle Partners is strongly believe and follow themes and healthcare is also in that theme bucket. So uh, first, welcome everyone. I'm gonna hand over to Drew and Drew's gonna explain the session and give a bit of background. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, yeah, I think maybe the good way to put some, some uh, scale to it is I've been having quite a few conversations lately. We deliver quarterly reviews for our clients that report on income growth and all those sort of things. And one of the biggest questions coming out this year has been, why is my income fallen? You know, generally returns were, were great, but we saw last year, most ASX listed, most global listed stocks cut their dividends in half. Um, and there's, I mean, there's naturally been a, a, pre a preference for listed, you know, ASX listed fully frank dividends because of the um, refunds you get. But we saw last year how quickly that can dissipate. So as as delivering retirement income, you can't have some, you know, massive income one year and no income the next year. So our focus is always on delivering consistent and stable income. And that's where we think commercial property and different types of property can play a role. Um, introducing and as Jamie said, it's not just income. There is some growth there too. Uh, so we introduced Rob Morrison, who's head of property. Uh, Barwon does more than just healthcare property. And Sophie, who runs the healthcare property fund, I think you have uh, around two and a half billion under management now, Rob. I, I think I called in the notes an, uh, an Australian success story. Thanks, Drew. No, Barwon's grown um, successfully. We've been uh, working for 16 years now, so formed in uh, 2006. So overnight <laughs> success story. Yeah, nice. So we, we kind of focus on three areas: so healthcare, property, property finance, and private equity. But healthcare is a really big part of what we do, and uh, it's a sector that uh, we certainly enjoy working in. It's, uh, it's it's a great area to be involved. And what are your backgrounds? So we spoke to someone from that does global commercial property, who was a conveyancer, I think, Jamie, or valuer. So he was kind of on in that part of the business. What are your backgrounds in terms of? Yeah, well, I started off, uh, I did a town planning degree, actually, back in the early days, um, back in Melbourne Uni, and, uh, and from there, I stepped into property and I uh, had a long career at AMP and AMP Capital, so I went through the, through the ranks there, involved in commercial buildings, you know, some of the properties that uh, your viewers would know, like Knox City Shopping Centre and Workplace and those kind of properties I've been involved yeah, sure. with, so a long history in, uh, in real estate, uh, and then, you know, obviously formed Bar in 2006, and uh, very much enjoyed getting involved in sectors um, that are kind of less competed 
less research, but offer really good tailwinds for investment. And so that's been Bowen's guiding philosophy and, and uh, the healthcare sector is uh, certainly fitted into that, that thinking. And your background, Sophie, what was... Um, well, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I started off with a bit of a different background, realised early on that being a lawyer wasn't really for me, so I moved into investment banking, from there transitioned to healthcare property funds management up until recently, I was with um, Centuria for five years, mm. and a few months ago came across and joined the Barwon team. I think Jamie's wife is a property lawyer by trade as well. I think that knowing the legal side is very important for property, it is. isn't it? It is. So tell, tell I mean, healthcare um, is, is, is a huge area, right? So there's lots of people that use the word healthcare and they mean one thing and healthcare means another thing and healthcare means it. So what, what does it, you know, what, what is the scope and, and what do you guys see as really the, seat, the sweet spot in the scope of what healthcare property means? Um, yeah, healthcare uh, for us, uh, we define a bit more narrowly. So we focus on uh, healthcare facilities. So we have medical services being provided. So you know, that looks like a GP clinic or a super clinic. It could be radiology. It could be um, specialist facilities, a private hospital, right up to, to larger hospitals. So we, we, we focus very much on uh, a narrower definition of healthcare. But beyond that, some people might talk about aged care and even retirement as being on the edges of, of healthcare. healthcare we, yep. we, we exclude those from our universe. So it, it's very much a focus on where there's medical services being provided uh, is, is a guide to where we invest. And why did uh, Barwon kind of direct into healthcare originally? Well, was it? You know, we, we liked it because um, you know, as a smaller firm, you know, back uh, 10 years or so ago, we like to look at sectors which are, are less competed, uh, less researched, where we see a bit of mispricing. And importantly, sectors where we see good tailwinds behind them in terms of long-term space demand. Sure. One of the really nice things about healthcare is that, you know, Australia, we all know we've got an ageing population. And as you get older, the amount of medical services and healthcare services you need increases significantly. To give you a bit of an example, you know, when you're in your mid-30s, you probably go to the GP doctor, you know, once a year if you're lucky. Once you get to 65, you're probably going around about um, six or seven times a year. Once you get to 75, you're going to be there every Daily. That's the sad reality of it. That's yeah. the high expectations of what our healthcare service is providing for us. But, but in that kind of world, what we've got in Australia is the baby boomers now entering that kind of 60 to 70 kind of range. And so they're getting into that stage where they're going to need more healthcare services. And so that, that tailwind behind the sector uh, is, is really important. And of course, you know, healthcare services are non-discretionary. You know, we're all going to get sick. We all need to be fixed and to be cared for. And so they're, they're things that really attracted us to the uh, sector. And it's very much, so you're competing with kind of inst other institutions in the sector? Yeah, it's interesting. When we first looked at the healthcare sector you know, many years ago, we saw it in the US uh, when the big institutions over there, like CalPERS and CalSTRS, the big pension funds, when they invest, they think about office, retail, industrial, and healthcare was often the fourth leg of their core strategy. But in Australia, that wasn't really happening mm. that much. But if you look over the last five years or so, and I think Barnes, you know, we've, we've contributed to this, uh, we, we've been attracting institutional investors into the Australian healthcare mm. market. And, uh, and so they're actually looking at the sector and they're saying, gee, it, it looks quite resilient. It looks quite defensive. And it's interesting when you look at the GFC, what happened there, you know, office retail industrial came off and, and yep. recovered, but the healthcare sector sailed through. And again, last year with uh, with COVID, 
uh, you know, all of us were watching very carefully markets and what was going to happen, uh, uh, with the exception of a couple of months when we weren't quite sure ourselves in kind of maybe March, April. We very quickly saw that the healthcare sector was holding up quickly, yeah. holding up well. And uh, interestingly, Bowen had its strongest year uh, as, as, a, as a funds management firm, and our healthcare funds had the strongest year over the last 12 months you know, during a pandemic. So I think that speaks a lot about the resilience of what we're doing. And what does your sort of uh, universe look like? You, you know, you're buying $100 million hospitals or maybe billion-dollar hospitals, wouldn't they? <laughs> uh, well, well, we range from uh, assets down as low as 3 or $4 million, which might be a small you know, GP-type clinic or radiology facility, through to larger uh, you know, private hospitals that might be in that 10 to $20 million range. And uh, we've got actually two, two funds in the healthcare sector and now a bigger institutional fund we own assets, anything up to 250 million and above, which would be private hospitals like Calvary and John James Hospital in Canberra, the Gosford Private Hospital in New South Wales. So we do have some large assets as well. So the um, you did mention about US property. They've got another sector that we don't have over here um, called multifamily. Um, is that the next thing Barwon's going to go into? It's... <laughs> uh, it, it's funny, I was actually talking to a colleague of mine this morning about that area. Um, Look, no, I, I don't think uh, multifamily is, is, is for us. Um, in the US, if you're investing in multifamily, which is like apartments for rent, mm. uh, you do get some tax advantages over there. So it's been quite a, uh, an attractive area Hard for to make work. investors. Those tax advantages aren't really available here in Australia. And uh, if you look at uh, rents in you know, many residential properties, the, the gross rent might be around about 3% on mm. your capital. But the net rent, once you've paid for your agency fees and all the other bits and pieces of owning a property, can often push that yield now down to even two or even lower. Sure. So we think for many institutional investors, that's just not good enough. And, and so, yes, while there are institutions looking at the multifamily area in Australia and are trying to make it work, uh, we think it's going to be a bit of a tough It has challenge. to be all about the G, doesn't it? So, uh, sorry sorry for yeah. getting off the yeah. topic. But um, so when you look at a GP clinic and you go and look at a private hospital, I assume that's two different sets of lenses and a DD process for both. So, you know, do you guys, um, how do you do that? When you, when you get presented an asset, do you have a, a team that goes in and says, okay, here's the checklist, this is what it looks like. And what's the most important factors there? Well, so, well, Sophie does this day to day. This is what Sophie does. Sophie, so I'll let Sophie step <laughs> full through. DD. Yep. So we yeah we do do full DD on everything we buy, and it does change. So if you're buying a medical centre, what you're looking at is quite different to if you're buying, say, a day hospital. And there is, I suppose, a standard set of criteria and standard due diligence which we do across both. But then. The key difference is that in healthcare, we like to drill down on the operational and business fundamentals. So that means really understanding why that business is there, why it has to be there, what keeps it sticking and what keeps the tenant servicing the rent. So that's understanding, I suppose, the fundamentals behind how a GP practice works, how a GP's practice needs to run to be successful and whether that business has those factors. So that's a key part of our due diligence, really looking at the operator, their financial capacity, their business model, and looking at the wider area where that property sits, those demographics to see whether that supports the business. 
Someone told me that you never buy a hospital because the only thing it can be used for is as a hospital. Is that a, is that a, um, would you agree with that statement <laughs> or would you say actually it can always be used as a hospital? So, um, well, I learned a new term this morning, didn't I, from Giselle Rue, which was redundant asset. Was it redundant investments or in, in, in redundant in infrastructure? Stranded. So, yeah, stranded. Sorry, stranded uh, assets. Yeah. So, can, can hospitals be stranded and golden staff and yesterday's business? Or how do you get around that? It is possible. And there was uh, a building up in, up in Q, actually, uh, a private hospital there, which uh, got a bit beyond its means and, and got shut down temporarily, although it's been restarted again. But, but as, a, as a general observation across Australia, uh, we love hospitals because they are monopoly assets generally, and they're often very strategic for the hospital operators. Mm. So you think about you know, having a, a big private hospital, um, which has got a, you know, a long list of, of surgeons kind of committed to it, uh, a lot of patients, high technology equipment, you know, radiology facilities, CAT scans, MRI systems, mm. nuclear medicine, uh, a whole lot of uh, very expensive um, and, and very kind of difficult to move assets. And so that's one of the things we like about, you know, hospitals and, and a lot of these medical centres is that it's very difficult for the tenants to move. And we call it tenant stickiness. You know, how sticky are these tenants going to be? And what we've found, and this is it's a bit of a lesson I'd like to share with the viewers, what we've found over the last seven years is that uh, healthcare tenants are very sticky. And the reason why they're sticky is that, you know, just, just put yourself in this position. Um, if you're a patient, you're sick and you're feeling miserable and you're going down to see your GP, do you want to find out that your GP has actually moved and gone yeah. somewhere down the road? That's the last thing you want to have. Yeah, GPs okay. understand that, uh, that they shouldn't move unless they really have to. Yep. And hospitals are even harder to move because it's just so mm. expensive. And so, so that really appeals to us as an investor because we, we know that there's long-term income streams likely to come through the asset. And to add to that, it's also about working with the tenant to make sure that the hospital is up to standard, it's compliant, if they need to expand as a landlord, we're at the forefront of that, helping them expand and making sure they are there for the long term as well. Is that one of the ways you kind of see growth? We focus a lot on income, but one of the ways you see growth is by offering CapEx and, you know, expanding the floor, exactly. adding new levels, building on car parks. Exactly. And that's also a big part of our due diligence. When we do buy an asset, looking at it at its expansion capacity, it's just now, but in five or 10 years time, how big and what else can we do to add value to the asset? And one of the, we think about themes if, if people read our things as well. And one of the biggest themes we've got is the aging demographic. It's the same in the UK and in the US. And uh, you were kind of alluding to it, I think, which is over, you know, people living longer. Retirement used to be, you know, 15 or 20 years. Now it's like 30 or 40. The longer you live, the more, you know, things you're dealing with generally. So um, it's hard to see hospitals or too much disappearing. Um, I, I had a bit of a question about getting breaking down into the portfolio a little bit, which was, you know, we look at an Aussie equity portfolio, 20 stocks is diversified. What's what's it look like in, in property? Uh, maybe it's not diversified, but that's what most people see is diversified with four banks. Um, Individual investors would say that's diversified. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's the healthcare fund look like? So our healthcare property fund is diversified. Um, we look at diversification, not, by, not only by geographic diversification, but by the tenant type, the um, asset type, 
and the different income streams. So in BHPF, we have properties across the nation. I think only in Northern Territory, we don't have any assets, but it's pretty spread um, with a concentration on the East Coast, but nationally. And that goes uh, for metro assets and also assets in major regional centres and cities. I think there was a purchase in Broome last I, year, wasn't there? We did. We did purchase a um, community mental health facility in Broome leased to WA Health. And then also another thing in geographic, apart from geographic diversification, we look at the tenant profile and we do look at the types of operators. So in BHPF, we do have about 91 individual tenants, 67 unique tenants and a good concentration of ASX listed covenants, so large healthcare operators such as your Helios's or your Sonics, as well as international healthcare operators, say your Fresenius's or Genesis Cares of the World, and also mm. strong backing of government tenants. So about 16% of the portfolio is underpinned by Queensland Health, WA Health, and South Australia Health. This may be a good segue into what happened last year. So, you know, as I said, dividends were cut, income from all Aussie, you know, listed stuff was cut. How did um, how did the healthcare portfolio, you know, did it go to e-health? Did people stop paying rent like they did in shopping centres? And what was a resilient, I think income resilience is really important, I think, in retirement. So, yeah, like, uh, There's nothing like a pandemic to uh, test your income resilience in a portfolio. <laughs> and, and I've got to say, um, the Barland Healthcare Property Fund uh, stood up you know, very well and uh, even better than our expectations. And so, as I said, mentioned earlier, there was a couple of months where some of our smaller uh, doctors started to put their hand up saying they wouldn't mind a bit of uh, rental assistance. And, and we went back to them and said, that's, that's fine. But um, show us your um, how you're, you're performing. Show us your profit loss. Give us some details about your business. So we pushed back a bit there, and uh, within about eight weeks, uh, we found a lot of those requests for rental assistance kind of just disappeared because um, I think they also realised they were doing quite well. And by the time we got to June, by the time we got to June, uh, it was quite obvious that the healthcare sector was really you know, taking off. And whilst elective surgeries are being delayed. Uh, there was still a lot of healthcare services going on and, and this healthcare, you know, as we know, is non-discretionary. Fast forward 12 months and what we're seeing now is huge uh, elective surgery lists uh, yes. are building up because people have been deferring elective surgery. And so our expectation for next year in 2022 is you know, all of us are going to be going back to our doctors and getting those checkups that uh, we weren't doing during COVID. That's going to lead to discovering things that need to be dealt with. Uh, a lot of elective surgeries can be back in action. Yeah. And if elective surgery is operating, then it has a, a flow-through effect for the whole uh, healthcare economy. So, of course, you, know, you see your specialist, you, you get a scan, you've got to go to your GP, you've got to get medicines, uh, you've got to go to rehabilitation. And so it affects the whole health economy. So we're, you know, we know the portfolio is performing well now, but we think uh, it's going to be uh, really benefiting from a, a very healthy health economy, uh, so to speak, uh, next year as, as people get back into full action. It's good in a way, isn't it? Because it's raised this issue, um, especially with us concentrating on retirees, is the de dependability of income. We use, we like another group here, smaller group called Castle Rock, and they have 90% of, 95% of their tenants are government, government tenants. So with a view that they're always going to pay the rent, similar to healthcare, right? And you, as in a retiree, you can get really 
really focused on the I element of a portfolio and you can chase income and equity equity holders or people that buy stocks always fall in big value traps and go, look at that, that's paying 9%, how, how fantastic and soon enough the dividend's cut or soon enough the stock has fallen by more than a 9% of income. So, you know, when you're in retirement, absolutely, it's important that you look at not just how the the quantity of income, but also the dependability of income. And, you know, that's where this healthcare fund fits really well with, our, with what we're trying to achieve for our clients. And, you know, obviously there's other ways you can get dependability and income, you know, debt instruments and whatever else. It's not just uh, a one fit solution, but, you know, it, it, it's dependability of income. Now, Rob, you've spent so, a lot of years in uh, real estate. Um, and you know, you, you at, at AMP, did you, when did it, how long did it take until you kind of realized that there was different forms of income you could get from real estate and the dependability should be one of the most important things that you look at? Well, that's right, Jane. I mean, I've been in the sector now for over 30 years. So I've seen a few cycles, I've seen a few ups and downs along the way. And, uh, and, and I think what's going on at the moment is that people are starting to recognise that um, you know, this resilience of the healthcare sector is very different to office and retail and industrial. And that's why the big superannuation funds are now starting to invest through borrowing into the sector because they're saying, hang on, we, we've got office, we've got a bit of retail. It's not always as dependable as what it used to be in the past. If we add a bit of healthcare to that mix, then that helps to provide more diversification and more confidence around those income streams that you're talking about. But the other thing that I think is important for, for retirees is also to think, particularly in the, in the current world, where there's a bit of inflation now starting to be seen, um, you need to protect your long-term income streams uh, with, a, with some growth as well as income. But you want to be linked, if you can, to income streams that are a bit linked to inflation. Yeah, sure. So if you, you might just want to just talk just briefly about how our rents work in, in healthcare and, and the linkages that we do have there. No, um Drew and I are just laughing because we had a massive we have an argument about inflation every day. That's perfect. At investment committee level, they're not arguments, Drew. They're debates. <laughs> they're debates about inflation. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Sophie, do you want to explain yeah. that? Yeah. So in healthcare, a lot of the leases are linked to CPI, which is a great natural hedge against inflation. So that means once inflation kicks up and if the economy growing, your rent review is also growing. So your income remains stable and isn't lagging. So that's a great attribute of healthcare leases. Not only are they, are they leases long, they're doing I don't know, 10 plus year leases, but also the rent is generally linked to CPI and that makes the income really stable and resilient. That's reset every year. Is that, that the way the Generally reset every year, yeah. With yeah. market reviews, also sometimes midterm, sometimes at the end of the term to bring the rents back to market if there is any lag. And how many kind of uh, lease maturities do you have any given year? <clears throat> uh, Not many. They're all very 10 to 15 years, aren't they? <clears throat> yeah, they are long-term leases. We do have, I couldn't tell you the exact number every year, but it'd be less than 5% of the portfolio generally. Um, generally, our leases, yeah, are 10 five to 10 years long-term. And also the great thing is that most of our tenants are happy and healthcare tenants, as Rob mentioned, don't like to move. Mm. So they're sticky and the renewal um, rate is really high as well. So 
It seems in office sector, every people are tend like trying to pull back their their square meterage. Is it is that something that's happening in healthcare, or is it kind of the opposite? And they need it's more. The opposite with COVID, everyone needs more space. Oh, of course, yeah. And yeah, also yeah. It's with health guidelines changing, mm. everything is becoming bigger. So, for example, an operating theatre twenty years ago may have been thirty square meters, where now the standard is sixty square meters. Everything mm. is increasing in size. And yeah, with additional regulation around COVID too, there's also the demand for more space. If, if you're investing or providing capex for, for mm-hmm. places, does that automatically re- get a higher rent from from the groups? That kind of built into. So there are a few ways we structure, um, I suppose, expansions. We can have an expansion where we fund expansion and rentalize it. Um, that is generally how it works but we can there's also other structures to work with the tenant but yes generally if we expand the property the tenant does pay more rent you mean like the maintenance capex through this improvement versus yeah just maintaining the asset in in healthcare is that pretty well standard in terms of the cost to him to to hold the asset at the same level there's probably a right word for this Rob I don't know what it is but you know is that maintenance capex or what's the capex that you've got yeah, to so, you know so we, we provide a, a certain percentage kind of every year um, of income as what we call maintenance capex just to keep the building looking fresh and presentable yep. and competitive and then over and above that we have you know expansion capex where we we we're going to expand the building add some value where there's a new rent deal done to, to make all that happen so Yes, we, we fully provide our cash flows for the day-to-day requirements of running the building and, and the maintenance capex. And then if we can, we try and do a, a really good deal with somebody like Queensland Health, or one of the big service providers, to, to expand their facility for them. And, and, and obviously part of that will be uh, negotiating a new rent deal for the additional space. Extra capital, we, yeah. we like to do that. But uh, Drew, I was just going to loop back to a question you had before about some um, you know, innovation and technology and, uh, you know, how's that affecting the, the operations? And you, you might ask um, what's happening with uh, telehealth, you know, how's that affecting what we're doing? I was going to ask you that. That was my next one. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, our, our experience of that so far is that, yes, telehealth is here. It's actually really good. It's actually working very well for the patients um, and, and the doctors, but it's not the same as, um, you know, being there with your doctor doing a proper physical inspection. So there's, there'll be a range of day-to-day things that telehealth works well for, like you know, renewing scripts and doing quick checkups. But of course, um, if you've got any kind of inter- intervention needed or, or, or proper medical care, then it's always going to have to be face-to-face. So we, we think uh, at the edges, it'll, it'll affect the GP clinic operations, but we don't think it'll be material. And we think it'll have no effect on the more higher acuity parts of the healthcare system like you know, operating theatres and, and you know, re- recuperation, you know, radiology, imaging, it won't have any effect there. I think I'd say my wife's a trainee obstetrician and as, as you'd expect, you, you can't do a 12-week scan, you know, by, no. by telehealth. No. Um, and most yeah. pregnant people want to come in and see a person, not, not exactly. sit on Zoom. And, yeah, yeah. Um, Who knows, maybe in 20, 30 years time, the iPhone will do it, but we're not yeah, there yet. Yeah. <laughs> put, put your phone on your belly. We'll baby. sell before then. Yeah, yeah. But, but on, a, on a similar thing, you, you know, your viewers might be asking, you know, what other technologies are coming down the track and how's that going to affect the healthcare area? And, and, and one thing that we've observed, which we think is really interesting, is that if you look at Uber, you know, Airbnb, some of these disruptive technologies that are coming through, they've had really big impacts on, on those parts of the economy. But what you ha- have happened in healthcare is that the more 
the more technology advancements that occur, it usually relates or causes more services. So just think about you know, better MRI systems and CAT scans. Okay, what does that do? It discovers more ailments in the patient leading to more surgery. Uh, look at pharmaceuticals. The more advancements in pharmaceuticals means that there's more things you can treat. We live longer, you need more medical services. And so one of the big challenges facing the government at the moment and, and facing you know, all economies around the world is that the healthcare economy is growing so strongly in Australia. It's, it's about 10% of GDP growing at about four to 5% per annum, which is significantly stronger than our CPI or our GDP of, the, of these economies. And that's going to be a challenge for the, uh, for the healthcare funding in the future. Governments are going to be struggling with that. Uh, and interestingly, as more technology advances, it's only going to make that challenge even, even more demanding. And so we think that taking a medium-term look, that it's going to be healthcare funds like ours, like the Bowen Healthcare Funds and, and similar funds that are going to be the natural owners of a lot of these healthcare facilities around Australia. And the governments will increasingly be focusing their attention on the operations of hospitals you know, operations as opposed to the real estate. So we think that's going to be a big opportunity for us in the uh, in the coming decade. Kind of, we see a lot of single property syndicates kind of pop up. Um, and as Jamie said, there's an assumption that you buy something that's government tenanted and it's fine. You just leave it. You don't have to do anything. But is it important to have kind of ongoing relationships with the the state governments and and the major tenants? Is that is that somewhere you can add value, or is it? Can you just buy it and forget about it? <laughs> no, well, Sophie's day is very much focused on, on our tenants and, and interesting in healthcare, there's not a lot of real estate agent activity or expertise in the healthcare sector. So that's a real advantage yeah. for us. And um, Sophie, you might just talk a little bit about asset management activities and why we're focused on that. Yeah, so I suppose anyone can buy an asset, but not anyone, not everyone can actually manage an asset and get the most value out of it and have that ongoing relationship with the tenants to really help them expand and maintain the asset and keep them there and happy and sticky. And a great example of this is actually our um, Logan Mental Health Facility. So this is a great example of a government-based facility. It's a mental health and community centre up in Queensland. And when we applied it in 2016, we did identify that the site was slightly tight and from there our great asset management team were constantly talking to the tenant who did say yes Queensland House said yes we need more space and from there we put together a um, expansion solution we bought adjacent sites we built them a new mental health facility right next door to match the existing building mm. and really doubled the size of the building the car park and if you have I suppose a single asset syndicate which is close-ended, doesn't have that, I suppose, mandate to expand or add value to the property. There is that risk that you will lose a tenant because they have outgrown the facility or their requirements aren't the same as previously. So having an open-ended, larger portfolio does really assist with that. That's a really good point. Sophie, mm -hmm. so a lot of funds also that we see, because obviously as advisors, we see everything, right? Everyone's mm -hmm. trying to pitch something to us. And to get the really good assets, sometimes, you know, the the, the whole, uh, and this is just business 
methodology by mm. build you know you, you can always turn up the auction and go shoulder to shoulder to everyone else uh, what's your value prop really price but if you can work with you know past tenants and government and then find an asset it sounds like you guys will also build that asset for the group or at least uh, helping that process and engage um, the appropriate people to make sure at yeah, the end of the day exactly. yeah and I suppose they end up being really and that's nice how you right? competitive as well yeah. in a tightening environment and where healthcare is the flavor of the month now that um, everyone wants to do it. And I suppose our real competitive advantage is that we've been around for a few years. We've got mm. that, those strong relationships already mm. and we really do know how to manage the properties well to add value and really be a bit different to our competitors. So when do you sell an asset, Rob? Have you sold anything out of your fund? Or you just... We have, and um, we, we generally sell assets when we think the asset has kind of hit its, hit its peak, really. And when the... you find the asbestos. Well, <laughs> we, we have a good look at it. We have a good look at it. And you know that before you buy it, Jamie. Come on. Sorry, sorry. Has yeah. <laughs> it got a lot of CapEx in front of it? Like, are we going to have to spend a lot of money to kind of keep the building competitive? You know, is the lease looking a bit short? You know, is the tenant um, you know, maybe struggling a bit in the location? Maybe you might have some troubles with rents in the future. Uh, and, and can we sell the asset at a good price and then redeploy that capital into a better investment for our investors elsewhere? Yep. You know, that's the thinking we go through. Traditional um, portfolio management, yeah? Can, correct. Where correct. can I use this money? Where can I redeploy? Where can I get the best value for the capital that we've got uh, in the fund on behalf of our investors? So that's our thinking. And... Uh, and we've been quite successful at it. And it's just been quite good over the last you know, five years or so when healthcare has been under such strong demand that you know, we put an asset on the market and we've been you know, quite surprised at uh, you know, how can these assets have been, been pursued and the pricing we've been able to get to exit. So we've been getting you know, um, returns and you know, well above 10% uh, in terms of you know, rates of return for those investments as we, as we exit. So we, I think it's always a good test of a fund manager. Are they good at selling as well as good at buying? You know, many of them are good at buying, but can they be good sellers? And I think that's a good test. Well, it's investments in general, right? We all love buying stuff. It's just how, yeah. do, we, how do we sell it? Do, do chemists, in, are they in your portfolio? They're not necessarily health. Chemists are, okay. Yeah, so generally our medical centres will have um, chemists, sometimes pathology, sometimes imaging. They're generally, I suppose, the trend is going towards multidisciplinary medical centres. Yeah sort of like a health hub model where a patient can go and they can see the GP, get their script filled. So they are old rural, location, location, yeah, location. Exactly. You go to the local chemist because it's yeah, located right. Yeah. yeah. I've got a question for you, Rob. We talked about inflation before. Um, and then if inflation, this is not a continuum of our debate, Drew, don't stop smiling. But if, if inflation was to emerge, you, you potentially could say that, you know, Barwon is protected because within it, all these lease agreements, then there is some kind of uh, inflation, you know, uh, indexation of, of rent. And I, I assume that the cost of building a hospital in the future, if inflation emerges, would be a lot higher. What about the concept that, all these assets and every financial asset, so I'm not just picking on you, is essentially um, uh, priced against the risk-free rate and the risk-free rate has never been cheaper ever. So if that was to move and, you know, you've, you've had 30 years experience, not quite 40 into the 70s, but, you know, uh, what, what does that mean for a portfolio like this? Do you think those things outweigh the potential cap rate 
you know, what this asset is worth. If you've got rent going up and the value of the building going up, does that outweigh the, does that create some stability in the, in, in the portfolio versus um, what could be traditionally just compared straight to a, you know, risk-free rate at six rather than at two? So, Jamie, the, yeah, these are things that are hard, hard to predict. If you look at history... Yeah, I, I don't know the answer, that's why I asked. <laughs> we tend to have these counter, countervailing forces. And on yeah. one hand, uh, if we've got a higher inflation environment, say that over the next few years, you know, Australia's inflation ticks up, as is currently being debated, and, and it's, uh, it doesn't get out of control, but it does build, that would normally coincide with a strengthening of the Australian economy. Uh, which will then lead to you know, more activity, more demand for space, uh, improving economics of businesses leading to a, a better capacity to pay rent. So that's a kind of, so often you know, healthcare property, but property generally normally does well in a strong economy uh, with a, a bit of inflation there. But the countervailing issue which you're raising is, well, if, if the bond rates are going up, your risk-free rate is going up, then is the margin there gonna be between your yields and your bond rate sufficient? Or are we going to see the valuation of assets coming off a little bit? We call them capitalisation rates. Will they start to move up? Our current view is that we don't expect a big breakout in inflation. We think it's likely to be transitory rather than kind of permanent. Uh, you're it's a true, true scan. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, but It'll be deflation even, next year, so that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. And, and even if it does tick up a bit, we, we don't think it's likely to result in a big change in the, uh, in the valuation cap rate supplied to the property market and, and arguably that might be 50 100 basis points but that'll be offset we think by improving rents so net net i, I think it's a scenario we can handle well and there's going to be quite, oh, sorry worst place to put your money to you know if you think about if it was worst case it was an inflationary environment you know there, there's going to be a lot worse you, you've got to put your capital somewhere so where are you going to put it there's going to be a lot of things that get impacted a lot more negatively than you know a healthcare portfolio of you know quality assets all right uh, like the reverse sorry go ahead i fully agree with that and uh you know we won't be immune but i, I think it's a scenario we can manage well hmm. so the flip was you know cap rates which you, which you say is like a valuation yield for people that are listening hmm. cap rates at the moment how have they changed in the last say five and ten years that that would explain how much the values have gone up and how much they would reverse are they Yes, correct. Well, when we bought our first medical centre down at Belmont in Geelong uh, on a 10-year lease, we bought that on a cap rate of 7.6%. Uh, yeah. So that's a, so a yield. So on, on the total amount of money we invested, we were getting 7.6%. Probably thought you were paying too much. <laughs> and then what was the bond rate then? Probably about 5%. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, of course, that's proven to be a, a wonderful investment for us. And we still got the asset in the portfolio. Today, if we wanted to buy that asset, today uh, in, in its current form, we'd be paying a cap rate of around 5%. It could even be, you know, in the fours. Sophie, would that be about right? I would have thought yeah. so four and a half to five. So that, that contraction of the yields from 7.6 down to five just shows how, you know, it's a product of the low inflation, low bond rate environment. But it's also a product of the increasing interest in the healthcare sector. Hmm. When, when did you buy that property? Uh, that was seven years ago. Seven years, so the bond rate would have been like three, four percent then. Yeah, so it's kind of reduced by the same amount that the bond rate's reduced over the same. Mm. So your spread over the bond rate's been about the same. Yeah, that's a good question, Drew. So, so the spread above the bond rate for healthcare properties has been
been pretty consistent over that period? Yeah, pretty consistent, probably tightening a little bit uh, as some of the beginner institutional money comes into the market. Because I, I think what we're saying is that the risk premiums, we often talk about you know, risk premiums in all markets, but the risk premium that's being applied to healthcare, I think, is narrowing because a lot of the institutional investors have a better understanding you know, the risk attributes we've been talking about today. The long leases, good quality tenants, government backing, demographics driving the demand for healthcare. These things are being better understood here in Australia now. And, and so we are seeing healthcare assets being priced you know, more finely, I think, because um, people want, want to get a piece of it. Now, you've got me totally convinced now. Rob, I was half convinced at the start. But one of the things that we do, we like the global assets. So you, you mentioned the word Australia. So this fund is just an Australian fund. Does that include New Zealand? And is there potentially an opportunity for a global fund from Barwon? Or is there someone else that does a global fund that you admire? There are any global healthcare funds. There are a few listed funds over in the US that are healthcare oriented. Um, but yeah, in terms of our fund that we're managing, it is Australia focused. Uh, I would never say never to New Zealand as being a possible place we might uh, we might venture, but there's no near-term plans for that. Um, but uh, but we like we like Australia, and uh, we think there's plenty of opportunity. And it's interesting if you look at the amount of the healthcare sector that's owned by funds like ours, mm. uh, we'd, we'd estimate that it's around about you know six percent. Is that right? It's Who owns the rest? It's just quite well, amazing. Well, by private individuals, by companies. It's, it's in kind of private uh, hands. Owner-operators, a lot would be... A lot of non-for-profits as well who own it on balance sheet. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I suppose globally, that's a you've got a really unique uh, skill base here, and a part of that skill base is understanding the landscape implicitly. If you, if you were to move to Singapore or wherever it mm. might be, obviously, you wouldn't necessarily have that knowledge, and that would that's one of your... You know, one of Barwon's strength is they understand the market here yeah. really well. We like to do deep dives into sectors and really understand them and uh, know what we're doing. And I think that gives our investors and clients, you know, confidence that we know what we're doing. And, and I know, for example, I've been to Singapore and had a good talk to the, some of the locals there about healthcare. And it's a different system there. It's very much government run. It's very tightly held. Uh, and, it's, and it looks very expensive. So uh, <laughs> over the 30 years, one thing I've learned is that uh, many Australian groups go overseas as property groups, thinking they can do the same thing because they're doing Australia and do it in New York or do it in London successfully and compete against the locals and beat them at their own game. That's and just I, not in property, Rob. That's everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone uh, struggles offshore. Sophie. Uh, mm. I think, I think the yeah. And then also being on the ground has so many advantages being able to talk to the tenants face-to-face, understand their requirements, see the properties really regularly. And um, so yep. that is something else you couldn't do. Still important from a client's perspective. You know, um, we talk about the concept of the last third of your life being retirement and that you've got a finite, doesn't matter how much money you have, right? So from the rich to the poor, typically you have a finite pool of capital. As soon as you have a finite pool of capital, then mentally you have to think about that differently. You know, you have to, it affects you day in, day out. So this concept that you can connect with the underlying asset, we would say essentially we've like, 
you know, to hold Woolworths directly rather than hold Woolworths through the fund. So, you, you know, when you shop at Woolworths, there's a real connection, similar to bricks and mortar, isn't it? You know, if you can drive past a hospital and say, well, I own a portion of that, there's some kind of, you know, to be a successful investor, there's lots of ingredients to that. And connection is something that is often lost, I think. So, you know, um, your fund does that, that, that connection um, for retirees. It does too. And I think also for, for retirees that are also interested in making sure that their investments are good investments from a, from a social environmental perspective, we often refer to it as ESG. Uh, we are finding that a lot of investors are looking at what we're doing in healthcare is really ticking a box there as well. And our philosophy is that we want good investments tick, but we also want to make sure we're doing good in terms of our impact on the community. And so I just thought I'd draw attention to the fact that we're sure. very active in the, in the mental health area where we own mental health facilities. We own GP clinics, we own radiology, oncology facilities and cancer care. And so um, for our team, we're, we're not only motivated by investing well, but we're also motivated by the fact that we've got this opportunity to, to make a really good impact uh, on the community in a, in a really constructive way. And, and as Sophie said earlier, our, our work at, uh, at Logan is, is absolutely front and centre there. We've, we've doubled the size of the mental health facility. You know, what does that facility do? It has specialist mental health workers that go out into the Logan community, a bit like Danny Nong in Melbourne, and, and deal with people with mental health challenges, adolescents with mental health challenges. Uh, they have clinics inside this facility for people with mental health. And so a really good example where our investment is, is doing you know, good in the community in a, in a really important way. So I thought I'd raise that with you today. Drives price too, doesn't it? We've uh, been associated with a group before that's a bit more transformational, taking an asset that could be argued to not have ESG or star ratings low and then build it back up. And, you know, then a lot more people will be interested in that asset. Um, so do you, is that a, a regular part of your process? You put the E hat on and the S hat on and the G hat on and then think about how this might work? Yeah, well, Sophie will attest that as part of our due diligence work, we actually have an ASG matrix as part of that. So when, yeah, when, when, the, when the team actually present an investment opportunity to the investment committee, which I sit on, uh, part of that investment paper is a, is a ESG matrix to assess how this uh, investment stacks up against other things we do and, and what the benefits will be to the community. Because some private um, hospital operators would be, you know, historically, let's say historically, have fa has failed on that G element, haven't they? That's kind of been a problem historically with uh, private hospital operators. And, you know, they seem to be a lot better than they were six, seven, eight years ago. But, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Do you price the risk then? Or do you just not, does it just fall out of the bucket? So if you looked at an asset and it failed the ES or the G, do you go, ah, we're not going to invest? Or do you go, yeah, we get it. Um, we get that you're making a commitment to change. It's not right today. And you've got a plan to change. And then you just price the risk and say, well, this asset, rather than paying 20 million, we think it's worth 16 million because of these ESG risks and it's transferring to a better governance structure. And then we don't necessarily know management totally well. So is that kind of the process? It all ends up being... It is part of it. And so the ESG analysis will actually show up shortcomings of the building so maybe the air conditioning system is, is inefficient using too many um, you know greenhouse gases mm. maybe it's poor lighting um, maybe the the um, the building itself is just consuming too much energy 
so we, we look at those issues and say, okay, well, can we fix that? And, yeah. and, and if we are going to fix it, how much is it going to cost? Yeah. Put it into the cash flows and then we price that into the pricing of the asset. And then, and then we, we uh, throw to Sophie and, and the asset management saying the, the challenge of saying, okay, get in there. Let's, let's get a work program and let's over the next three years address these issues. And, and that has two benefits. One is, you know, clearly we're benefiting the environment and, and perhaps having some good social impacts. But the other benefit is that it makes the building more attractive to tenants. And so it will, it will help us retain the existing tenants or if need be attract new tenants to the building because they can see it's a, it's a better package uh, on those criteria. So it has a, has a dual benefit. And it's a must-have also, Rob, for a lot of our tenants. So a lot of our larger corporates or government tenants need mm. a minimum criteria of ESG initiatives at the property to be there. So if they aren't addressed, you're not going to retain the tenants. So it is really important. Mm. You might have already <clears throat> answered this one throughout, but we've got a, a nice curly question that we usually try to finish on, which is if you could only own one of your, your portfolio properties forever, you buy it, forget about it. Uh, which one is it? They can't be the same. Maybe that's a good one. That's a good <laughs> one, yep. <laughs> okay, well, the building I would I'd not mention is, is what I've already mentioned is Logan. You know, to, to own a building like that, which is worth $40 million now, it has a, a little tenant known as the Queensland government paying the rent. We don't talk about Queensland in Melbourne at the moment, do we? Uh, it, it, uh, <laughs> well, this Queensland government hit the ESG screen. <laughs> Keep going. We don't get political now. <laughs> and it has a 10-year lease and the rent goes up 4% per annum uh, and it's having a really positive impact on the, on the Logan community. So I, I think that, for me, that's, that's the asset that I uh, shouldn't fall you know, uh, have emotions for your properties, but I, if I had to, that's one that would be on my list. Sophie, you, you got a, another asset? Um, you stole a good one, didn't you? <laughs> you did steal a good one. We have a few more good ones. It's all good. Um, probably in Launceston. It is a small eye hospital now. We're looking at expanding it. We're going to triple its size over the next few years. And once that's done, it's going to be a fantastic hospital for the community. So I like that asset you have at the airport, Adelaide Airport. Adelaide that Airport. Yeah, yeah that's, no, that's fantastic. That's my pick. Is. Drew, do you have a pick? Broome. I, I've spent a bit of time <laughs> in Broome before. So that, yeah. that medical centre. Yeah, I think that'll be a you know, massive winner over a decade. Uh, and Drew, uh, is that because you want to go up there and inspect it? Is that part of the... Uh... <laughs> no, I've been up there, up there enough. I don't need to go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hot up there, especially in, in wet season. Mm. Okay, we might... We might um, bring this podcast to to an end really appreciate rob your time and your expertise and i always admired you know you as a property expert so thanks for taking the time and and sophie you've joined an amazing team in barwon uh, appreciate you talking about your fund and where it fits and and how retirees to can can, can use it uh drew always a pleasure thanks guys cheers thank you thanks a lot